Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Hymn to Beauty by Charles Baudelaire, a poem from 1861 and translated into English into in 1925 by uh, Clark Ashton Smith is the translator. So I, I'd never read uh, the collection that this is most famously from uh, called Flowers of Evil. Had you read that before, Eric? I have. Um, it was uh, interestingly one of the, the textbooks used uh, for a French course I took when I was in college, Les Fleurs du Mal. Uh, it's it's quite a quite a powerful set of poems, and they uh, I think they have in the title themselves uh, one of the key ideas behind. Uh, most of the poems in the collection, which is that things that look like they may be good, in fact, may be bad. I mean, one doesn't think of flowers as being evil or mm-hmm. or bad, um, but these are the, the flowers of, it's usually translated into English, just the flowers of evil. But mal does not necessarily mean evil. It can also be bad, as in malformed or malnutrition. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's really flowers of badness. Uh, evil has a kind of uh, spiritual connotation or divine, you know, uh, religious connotation that's not necessarily here. But I think that becomes clear the degree to which things are complicated. They're both good and bad and they are or are not religious. Um, when you take a look at individual poems like this one, um, did you like it? If you did, maybe you'd read it to us. Give a sense yeah. of how it struck you. Yeah, I did. I was struck by it, and um, I'd heard of Baudelaire before. And uh, when I saw that it was translated by Clark Ashton Smith, a, a, a poet who I don't know as much as I'd like to about, um, I thought, oh, this this should be good. And I read it, and I was, wow, this is different and strong and powerful, visually rich. So. Yeah, let me uh, let me read it. Please. Hymn to Beauty by Charles P. Baudelaire. Fallest thou from the heavens or soarest from the abyss, O beauty? Thy regard infernal and divine pours out in a vast confusion crime and benefice, and therefore one might well compare thee unto wine. The sunset and the dawn in thy deep eyes are holden, Thou sheddest forth perfumes like a tempestuous eve. Thy mouth a filter doth the very child embolden, and heroes fail in thy web. Thy sorry, and heroes fail in the web. Thy slow caresses weave. Comest thou from the black profound or stars above? Destiny like a dog ensues thy in thy haunted gown. Sowing all chancefully disaster, joy, and love, thou art the imperatrix, imperatrix of all, the slave of none. Thou tramplest on the dead with mockeries eternal, horror is half thy jewel-laden rosary, and murder is a charm most precious and infernal, that on thy haughty bosom trembles amorously. 
the ephemera flies to hail thee, candle of all our night, and flaming dies in adoration of its doom. The lover leans towards the breast of his delight, even as dying man fain to caress his tomb. Be thou from hell or heaven flown, what matters it, O fearful monster, sphinx ingenious? If alone thine eye, thy foot, thy smile unbar the infinite, which I have always loved and never yet have known. Angel or sorceress from God or Lucifer, what matter, O my fay with velvet eye, if thus thou renderest by rhythm, gleam, and flying myrrh the world less exorable and time less burdenous? Wow. Um, would you be, I have a feeling that hearing this poem, I'm reading it along with you, but hearing this poem, there might be some difficulties. For instance, mm. um, thy mouth a filter doth the very child embolden. Um, that word filter is P-H-I-L-T-E-R. It means a love potion. It doesn't mean like a coffee filter. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, hearing it, uh, you would not know it was saying thy mouth uh, a, a love charm, something that attracts me. Uh, and similarly, uh, in the penultimate line, thou renderest by rhythm, gleam, and flying myrrh. Um, not everybody will know that that's myrrh as in frankincense and myrrh. Um, it's a hard poem, I think, to hear. It's such, such mm. a, a recondite language, you know, fallest thou from the heavens. Um, how did... It, it, how would you capture the the theme of it? What is this? What is this thing? The guy is speaking to beauty. What exactly, you know, in a sentence is he asking beauty or saying to beauty? Um, which mm -hmm. hard to get, you know, in this language. Yeah, it's it, it it works incredibly well on the page, and I think it works less well spoken. Um, but I think just looking at it sentence by sentence rather than line by line. It actually is even better. Um, and it, it has this, everything is like the opposite, right? So, um, fallest thou from the heavens or soarest from the abyss, O beauty? Both are a kind of flying, um, but one's from hell and one's from heaven. Um, infernal and divine pours out in vast confusion crime and benefice. It's all, you know, paired. Everything is paired with its opposite. And so you get these images like a beauty as a as a monster, but also as a benefit. So then the the last the last verse when it says angel or sorceress from God or Lucifer, what matter, O my fay, which is a fairy with velvet eyes, if thus thou renderest by rhythm, gleam, and flying myrrh, the world less execrable and time less burdenous. Um, mm. So the, the conclusion here then is, I can't tell whether you're good or bad, divine or infernal, inspired or depressing, uh, inspiring or depressing. But you know what? If you make the world less miserable, if you lift the weight of the world somewhat off my shoulders, I want you, beauty, um, even though you are not, you know, some old-fashioned platonic 
pure beauty. You are mm-hmm. the beauty of the world. Um, it's interesting whether it falls from the heavens or rises from the abyss. Either way, beauty is secular here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also it, it's it ends with a question. That uh, final line is a question. Uh, the previous stanzas ends with a question. Most of the stanzas have a question built into them. If it doesn't actually have a question mark, it's it's not. It's still you know making comment like, what is what are we to make of this? And uh, what what I think is so interesting is that he isn't praising beauty uh, unreservedly. It's more like, wow, look at this, and oh my god, wow, and oh, damn it. But I think in that last question, I think it's it's rhetorical because if you if you leave out some of the complicated clauses mm-hmm. inside it, it says what what matter if you render the world less execrable and time less burdenous? I don't think it's meant to say, well, now tell me exactly what it matters. I think what he's trying to say is it doesn't matter that that there's badness or evil that goes along with this particular flower as long as. You know, yes, that's too bad, but we're going to go for it anyway, because the mm. best we can do in this world. It's, I think it's a rhetorical question at the end. Mm. Yeah, it, it it also seems to be he's fallen under the spell or whoever's conceiving this debate is fallen under the spell, um, but not, you know, in resolution, but rather as just that's what happens you know whether we like it or not beauty rules us in ways that it make us horrible indeed and that's the imperatrix is the is the word uh, you know a a female emperor that Mm -hmm. uh, clark ashton smith uses in the french original uh it's la reine Uh, it's a unique reine my soul and unique queen Mm-hmm. Which you know comes from it's like monarch, unique, and monarch both come from roots meaning singular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think that uh, Baudelaire and Smith, as followed him in this, uh, makes the poem itself uh, an embodiment of the, some aspect of the confusion that beauty causes. Mm-hmm. Um, that first line. Fallest thou from the heavens or soarest from the abyss? So it goes up, down. O beauty, thy regard infernal, down and divine, up. So in the first line, it's up, down. In the second line, it's down, up. Um, I noticed some other translations of this poem didn't get that. But in fact, that's what, what Baudelaire does in the original. He says, viens-tu du ciel profond? Do you go from the deep heaven or sortu de l'abîme, or do you come up out of the abyss? O beauté, ton regard infernal et divin. Okay, so it goes ciel, heaven, profond, which means deep, interestingly, deep heaven, mm-hmm. or come up out of the abyss, and then your regard is um, infernal or divine. So it's up, down, down, up. Uh, mm-hmm. And that goes throughout in the original everywhere where you see uh, opposites when they are resonated with in another line, their order is reversed mm-hmm. so that there's this constant sense of confusion. The, the the normal parallel structure that one expects both in French and in English 
is undercut here, but it's not undercut in a way that makes it ununderstandable. It's undercut in a way that just puts everything smashed together as if mm-hmm. what beauty does is heighten our experience. But, and this is, I think, crucial in this poem, it's also, I happen to know, crucial in the whole collection. Um, as much as it heightens your experience, it does not heighten it enough. That is, the romantic speaker, the romantic poet, seeks, as it says in the next to last stanza, to unbar the infinite. You know, he wants to be able to, to get everything but we are finite. We never can, in fact, make that crossing to a world of the infinite. So we can't unbar the infinite. We're always um, prevented from making that. And there are a number of quite famous poems in the collection um, in which the same problem is presented. There's one called uh, Les Cheveux, the, the Head of Hair, um, in which the speaker is uh, a lover holding and then smelling, fingering and then smelling the hair of his beloved. And he talks about uh, the this drawing him to a, a port, a harbor. And if he would ever be able to get there, he would be able finally to come into complete unity with pure beauty. Uh, but as he begins to think about the journey, and the fact that it's a real human drawing him, he becomes secularized and he can never make the journey. So the flowers of sadness, of, of evil, of bad, are always driven by a desire to let beauty make our world divine. But it has in it, this is a key poem, the infernal. And so we are stuck on this earth making the most of beauty that we can. It, it sort of reminds me of uh, that very strange question one asks on leaving a Shakespearean tragedy, performance of a Shakespearean tragedy. So you've just seen Hamlet. Did you enjoy it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and sure, I love seeing people get murdered and mm-hmm. poisoned and stabbed. What, you know, there's, there is that about beauty. It's just... It's so much, but it's never the infinite that it promises. And so we are all diminished by it, even though we are raised by it. I think I think that pain is in this hymn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that it is a hymn to beauty, right? Um, I, I, I find it really helpful when I'm reading these poems to have a pencil in hand and be, you know, sketching out what I'm seeing. Um, because it crystallizes something, and yet this one has all these very disconnected images. And the the one that really struck me first, other than the you know the the infernal and divine up and down the uh, heavens and the abyss, um, was in the second stanza, and it's the sunset and the dawn in thy deep eyes are holden. Um, the sunset and the dawn look exactly the same as a still image you can't tell which is which one's going up one's going down right um and two eyes you know um going down (laughs) setting in the in the skull is looking down drawing that out um 
you've got two eyes in the exact same position looking down and beauty is this thing that is up above us right something that looks down upon us and we have that in the very next line as well the mouth a filter dot the very child embolden and then heroes fail in thy web thy slow caresses weave so we get the sense of a child being emboldened by beauty to strike out into the world and become a hero and then being destroyed by that same beauty yes yes and falling in failing they fall so it's uh, in either way the beauty looks down upon yeah. I, there's there's a word I want to look up and make sure I've got the French right. I'm trying to look at that stanza. Um, I think it is uh, yes. I think it is it's better in in the French even than in the English. Um, but well, let, let, me, let me read it and translate it uh, mm-hmm. bit by bit. Um, that second stanza, Tu contiens ton, dans ton oeil le couchant et l'horreur. Uh, you contain in your eye the, uh, the sunset and the dawn. Tu répands des parfums comme un soir orageux. You spread perfumes like a stormy night or evening. I guess, mm-hmm. stormy evening. Te baissé sans un filtre et ta bouche un amphore. Your uh, kisses are a love potion and your mouth is an amphora. That is, it, it's a, something for containing, to draw one in. Qui font le, le héros lâche, that makes the hero loose eh, or lax. Et l'enfant courageux, and the child courageous. So mm-hmm. it, it, it both Perfect. undermines the hero and it, it encourages the child. Um, it captures us. It's almost like La Belle Dame Sans Merci, which we've discussed mm-hmm. before. Um, it, it, those stormy, those stormy evenings, uh, that tempestuous evening, orageux, um, it, it works with other words in the poem um, for pride and for, and for, uh, Outrage. I mean, uh, the the language here resonates within itself. It gets just those contradictions that you talk about, although it it affects everyone. It affects everyone, um, right? Whether a hero or a child affects everyone. But the language that's resonating here, and to me, this is a, a key question about translation when i read the the clark ashton smith stanza the sunset and the dawn and thy deep eyes are holden thy deep eyes yeah it's your deep eyes right in the french it's ton oeil, it's your eye mm-hmm. right um are holden there there is no english word holden Right. But no. the French is to contient dans ton oeil. Right. You contain in your eye. Um, you you hold in your eye uh, a container. You, you hold in your eye. The French is making these profound resonances and uh, 
coordinating dichotomies in words that are mostly quite ordinary contemporary French from the 1860s. This poem was not in the first edition of Les Flots de Mal, but in the second one from 1861. Right? It was that's ordinary French. This is the French you would find if you were reading novels of the period. It's, it's ordinary literary French, totally contemporary. Clark Ashton Smith has used this very, very archaic and in some sense neologistic English. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in some sense these are different poems mm-hmm. because I think – and of course, they're in different languages. But I think what Baudelaire is doing is talking to us about how beauty is in our world and how we deal with it in our world. And, and we strive for it, but always fall back to our world. Whereas I think by using this strange language, Ashton, Clark Ashton Smith is suggesting something almost biblical. It comes from outside of us. I mean, he makes reference, he, he says the heavens, whereas uh, Baudelaire says ciel, which is sc- both heavens and sky in French. Um, so you can read it as the sky. Um, and he, the very first word in, uh, in the French is viens tu, you come. Um, but in the uh, English, it's fallest thou from the heavens. Well, my gosh, I mean, the fall is one of the first most powerful episodes in the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. Fallest thou from the heavens. And then he's got all kinds of other words that have to do with with religion in the translation. So, uh, you know, yes, he says God or Lucifer in the last stanza, and uh, Baudelaire says Satan ou de Dieu. Um, But he also goes on to say ange ou sirène, angel or siren mm. is he's making reference to Greek mythology alongside the Christian mythology. Whereas Clark Ashton Smith is loading this with a language and references that I think are reminiscent of the King James Bible. Absolutely. And, and that second line of the second stanza uh, following the sunset of the dawn in thy deep eyes are holden. It reads, Thou sheddest forth perfumes like a tempestuous eve. Eve meaning not just evening, but also the eve from the Bible. And it, it fits with that. And you're right. It is it is a different meaning. And it, yet, um, I it's it's just as beautiful. I, I, I love thinking about that first line. And he's actually saying the same thing twice. The fall, fallest thou from the heavens? Well, who fell from the heavens? Lucifer. Lucifer. <laughs> who rises up from the abyss to trouble us here on earth? Lucifer. <laughs> Either way, beauty is the devil. Right. And it's yet, int- she's sorry. so beautiful. One of the things, I mean, when we say it's a different poem, um, there are some ways in which one could say it's better. Um for example, I mean, better. I don't know. I mean, I I prefer the original, but uh, but there are things about the uh, about the translation that I think are really quite wonderful. If you were going to translate it as he has, as Ashton Clark Ashton Smith has, then 
that use of the word Lucifer in that last stanza, angel or sorceress from God or Lucifer. Lucifer, you know, those of us who know the etymology, remember that Lucifer, the the, the prince, uh, the fallen prince, the, the head of all of the angels, um, Lucifer means carrier of light, right? The, the loose is, is lux and the fur is uh, to carry, as in it becomes the English word to bear. Um, Lucifer means the carrier of light. In fact, once upon a time, there was a famous brand of matches called Lucifer's. Um, whereas what Baudelaire says is de Satan ou de Dieu. There's no reference there in in Baudelaire's fourth stanza to Lucifer, to the carrying of light. And yet that is actually, I think, an enrichment of the poem because that reference to coming to the candle, being drawn to the candle that will that will harm us, that's in the original as well as in the translation, that that uh, we are moths who are inexorably find beauty in our lives, but that beauty may in fact consume us. Um, that's that's in the name Lucifer. It's not in the name Satan. So uh, Satan. So I, I think there's a way in which, in fact, Clark Ashton Smith has improved on the Baudelaire. Although personally, the whole idea of Christianizing it um, seems to me to make it more specific. Whereas the more platonic view that Baudelaire takes, it seems to me, um, transcends the culture. Uh, somewhat more. Well, um, I, I like uh, I'd like to also point out that it's not completely uh, Christianized because um, that second uh, the the last stanza starts with um, de Satan or de de right, and then ange or serene, as you pointed out, is the siren. But actually, um, we we have a reference here to the Odyssey again in the. In the, uh, in the Clark Ashton Smith translation, which is angel or sorceress. And to me, the first and only sorceress worth talking about is Circe, who is from the uh, Odyssey as well. And I think is maybe an even more interesting figure than the Sirens. Actually, I'm sure she's a more interesting figure than the Sirens. First of all, she, is, she has dialogue, Right. Um, and she entrances men. She entrances men and brings them down in the same way that beauty does in this poem. It's it, she uses her wand to uh, and her potions both, which we have um, uh, earlier in the in the poem, um, to transform men into their base nature. And I think that. That that section of the Odyssey, I think, is maybe my favorite because it is so ambiguous as to why the men are changed. the The men of Odysseus's uh, experience with Circe are changed into pigs, as opposed to the other animals that inhabit her island, which are lions and wolves. And to me. Sorry. How did you how did you get that that sorceress is Circe? The, the first sorceress, just as the first woman, is Circe. There, there's she's the first woman to have a wand. She's the first character in history to be that sort of 
Harry Potter style wizard. I, with I mean, from this point, uh, I it just struck me ah. while you were pointing out the the difference in the sirens, and I was thinking, well, actually, no, he he's he's just switched it to another another uh, character from that same story because yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure that he has um uh, but you know that's that's part of what makes reading such a rich experience we bring to it the things that that we know um in the king james bible which is the the language that i'm i'm sensing here uh, it says in exodus um thou shalt not suffer a witch to live and in the new international version of the bible it says do not allow a sorceress to live Mm-hmm. Exodus 22. So um, Circe may in fact be um, the first sorceress with a wand, um, but I'm not. It's not clear to me that I would. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with seeing Circe there, but I don't think that one has to say, ah, yes, this is an Odyssey reference, um, because there, there's a perfectly adequate Bible reference. Well, what do, what do you make of the dog? This is something <laughs> I, that I drew in my drawing while reading this poem. And it struck me that it was maybe, – maybe the French will help us. But it struck me that it was a, sort of a disconcerting image compared to the rest, which has a lot of disembodied body parts. You know, a, a, the broken broken up body, the lips, the eyes, the, the bosom, the, the foot, right? Yes. Um, and then we have the dog. There's the web and the sphinx and the tomb and the candle and all of these things. But then there's this dog and it reads, Camest thou from the black profound or stars above, destiny like a dog ensues thy haunted gown. Um, well, ensues is, that's really, I guess he means it in the old, in the very odd use of the word follows. But um the French uh, also has a dog, but it's a slightly different, uh, it's different. So, uh, ensues thy haunted gown, like a dog ensues thy haunted gown. Destiny is like a dog. The French says um, in that second line of the third stanza, uh, le destin charmé suit tes jupons comme un sien. Right? Destiny, charmed destiny follows your petticoats like a dog. Mm-hmm. And I think the image, I mean, for me, the image is, I mean, remember, this is the middle of the 19th century. Uh, this is the same time as the American Civil War. Think of women in bustles and, mm-hmm. you know, right. So here's some destiny, charmed destiny um, follows your petticoats um, like a dog. So there's a, there's a, a little lap dog, you know, or a little yapping mm-hmm. terrier that's coming around and, and, and nipping along behind some woman who is floating along. So destiny um, is nipping at your petticoats beauty the way mm-hmm. a dog would nip at the petticoats of a woman. So I think um, there's a, a contrast of scales going on here that we are to beauty as the dog is to an ordinary woman. Um, that contrast of scales always brings to my mind the line from Shakespeare as gods to wanton boys, uh, as, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. So we are to beauty as, as a, a, a mistress in full regalia um, is to a little dog. 
I think that's that's it's not it's not the hound of heaven and it's not Cerberus guarding the gates of uh, of hell. I think destiny is uh, brought to this this gown um, because uh, destiny uh, is drawn by beauty. Uh, by the way, the gown is not as you saw. It's charmed destiny, not not a haunted gown um, in the original. He's moved where the haunting is going on in the mm-hmm. translation. So to, to me, the, the dog is, is a homely image, and it's the contrast of scales that makes it important. So, and it, fit, it fits to me, though, also with, with my Circe reading. And I, I don't want to push you too far on this, but I, I just want to point, point out that, that it is deeply interesting to me that Circe's man, Circe turns Odysseus's men into pigs, which is understandable in the story, given that they're, you know, eating her food and acting like pigs. Um <laughs> Other animals on her island are lions and wolves, right? To me, those are also transformed men that are from some other story. And it's if if we are being transformed by beauty, it turns us into her dog, is what I'm taking from this. And and that fits with the imperatrix to all and slave to none. Right. Man is is always the master of the dog and not the other way around. And beauty is always the queen of all of us. Exactly. And and yet that the dog is not it's not uh, an uh, an ignoble animal, I suppose, but it sure ain't a noble one. (laughs) Well, I, I as I say, I don't I don't see Cersei there, but. But I think it accords with at least the original. That is the notion I'm suggesting that um, Baudelaire wants to go, doesn't want to pursue the question of the complexity uh, of beauty in human life within a single cultural context. He doesn't want to make it just Christian. Um I think that if you see Circe in that dog reference and see Circe as an an example of the sorceress from the last stanza, that does have the effect of widening uh, Clark Ashton Smith's translation so that it's not so heavily drawn into uh, early 17th century English. It doesn't seem quite so much King James Bible then, if you do allow that. And, and that does accord with the original. So I... I prefer the, to see it there. Yeah, the, the Sphinx, that's in the original too, is it not? The uh, the Sphinx that we get in the second to last stanza. Oh, fearful monster, Sphinx, ingenious. Uh, that's in the French, isn't it? I, you, the, the penultimate stanza? Yes. No. It says, I'll translate it rather than reading the French. Um Do you come from the heaven or from hell? Uh, What difference does it make, O beauty? The enormous monster, um, horrifying. um, Then there's an interesting pun, um, ingenue, um, ingenious, but it also means a young woman. Um, If your eye, your smile, your foot uh, opens for me the gate of the infinite that I love and and that I never know. So I just translated the whole thing. Sphinx not there. No, no Sphinx. No. So, so it's so, a fearful monster. Is, yeah. Well, enormous monster. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is also fearful, effrayant. 
Um, but it may be that the reason that Ashton Smith puts Sphinx in there is because it's an Egyptian mythology and he's trying to counter the implications of that strange uh, grammar that he has chosen. Mm-hmm. So, it, so it, I, I see your point. I think that's good. It may be part of his way of um, transcending the, the the Christian mid-19th century context. Um so he's he's trying to get that aspect of the original into the French so that beauty in all ways at all times has this power. Um, I, there's a, uh, one I wanted to ask you about, and I thought this was very interesting because it yeah, I like the imagery, but I'm not exactly sure what uh, and uh, maybe that's the point is I'm not exactly sure what I'm to make of it. The lover leans. This is the third to last stanza. Um, the lover leans towards the breast of his delight, even as a dying man feigned to caress his tomb. Ah, uh, yes. So this goes back to les cheveux, right? To the, the hair, the head of hair. Uh, a lover leans toward the breast of his delight. A man is approaching the, the woman, you know, um, and he's doing it knowing that this is a place of final rest. That will, if he achieves it, uh, be the end of him. Um, that's what happens if you finally can really get to that that source of beauty, even as a dying man um, would want to caress his tomb. Uh, and caress, yeah, yeah, caress. And in the French, it's the same. Uh, it says uh, "l'amoureux pantalon," uh, pant, uh, the 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 panting lover, incliné. Sur Sabel, um, uh, leaning um, over his beauty, uh, female form for beauty, a l'air d'une moribonde caressant son tombe, um, has the the air of a dying person caressing his tomb. And now there, of course, what Baudelaire does not have, but Ashton Smith does have, uh, he just says Baudelaire someone is caressing his tomb, whereas uh, Ashton Smith, by using the word feign, is saying it's someone who actually wants to caress his tomb, as if he's being drawn to it. In that sense, he is uh, highlighting the the motive power that beauty has on us, which is entirely in accord with the original, but it doesn't happen to be in that line. But, but it you know, who knows what translation is? Um, he's getting the idea of the poem as a whole by choosing that word, even though that word is nowhere in the stanza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it strikes me as a very uh, this it's a very radical change in that he's using this highfalutin, you know, King James style um, vocabulary, but also making up his own words and. And moving lines around, um, and yet it's in all in an effort to to kind of recapture the original. I think that's a key point, Jesse. I'm so glad you mentioned it. I think what we haven't said yet, but is absolutely crucial, is that the poet does not simply contemplate beauty. The poet attempts to create beauty. And both for Baudelaire and for Clark Ashton Smith, what they are recognizing is that in their effort to create beauty, they create something which is not sufficiently beautiful to get them to transcend this world into the infinite. 
the poem lasts only so long. Mm. And then, you know, it makes, as Ashton Smith says, it makes the world less execrable and time less burdenous. uh, But then it's over. Mm. It's over and we fall back into into the world Um, that as much as we want to. Beauty is a promise. Beauty is a hope that we strive to achieve. But we can never, in fact, arrive there. It never becomes our final home. But there is always more to say.